Last season on Legacy Door. What did she want? She wanted me to get involved in some old business. I told her I just couldn't deal right now. Abby's unsteadily smiling college picture had looked out from the current news sidebar. Murders on Gold Coast. Jonathan Strauss had been arrested for the murders of Abby and Harrison. There was a beep. It was time to motor if she was going to make her lunch date with that lawyer. She'd been plotting their seemingly casual new acquaintanceship for days. And already it begins. Let them in, will you? Dan opened the door. Riley, on the other side of it, gave a smirk and nod, then stepped aside. Behind him was Uncle Frank, in his inevitable hat and overcoat, looking straight past Dan. Behind him, in turn, were a pair of young adults in blue scrubs, a man and a woman, both blonde and beautiful, both with smiles a bit too wide and blue eyes a bit too excited. But Dan didn't focus on them for long, because behind them was... a mystery. The eyes didn't look like they could ever have carried the emotions which had filled the nurses. They were like a technically perfect picture of eyes. This impression was so strong that it startled Dan when they shifted to regard him. Another masked woman, whispered Arthur Dorn. Shut up, said Frank Litcher. Legacy Door, Episode 2.1, Pretense. Daniel Litcher, 1048 AM. Dan was nursing a fruit and vegetable drink he'd purchased at a cafe and using the free Wi-Fi to do some research on what his uncle Arthur had called the logicians. Logician turned out to be a term for members of the Inspired Temple of Logic, a purportedly worldwide group that enjoyed the tax benefits of a church. The first several hits involved attempts to strip them of those benefits. Their headquarters, or Grand Temple, was in White Meadow, Minnesota, and their practices seemed to largely consist of mental and physical exercises to enhance concentration, creativity, and clear thinking. Dan looked at their website, and the serene happiness on the faces of the practitioners strongly reminded him of the blondes he'd just left with his uncles. Critics were easy to find, accusing the logicians of being at best a New Age self-help group calling itself a religion, and at worst, a cult, practicing the usual sins, bilking their membership, using volunteer labor for profit, and turning vulnerable young and old people against their families. But the general current seemed to be that they were eccentric, but fairly harmless. Their membership was small, their beliefs innocuous, and they had not been linked to any spectacular crimes. Searches combining the Temple of Logic with Arthur Dorn or Frank Lutcher produced nothing that looked useful, so Dan looked into more general history. According to their website, they were founded by Ptolemy the Astronomer in the 2nd century AD, and the first American member had been Benjamin Franklin. Outsiders, however, claimed that a circle of University of Minnesota students had made it all up in the early 1970s as a prank which had then been harnessed into a real enterprise as those in on the joke dropped out. Combining Temple of Logic with medicine or cancer provided examples of the logician's belief in holistic health and accompanying accusations of quackery, but none of the horrifying tales that haunted other groups, for instance of people dying shut off from conventional medical care. Again, it seemed to Dan, if they were a cult, they were the decaf of cults. Remembering Arthur's words, Dan took a different tack and googled Arthur Dorn with masked woman, getting nothing interesting. 
He tried again with Frank Lutcher and was surprised to get a promising hit. Someone had made a project of collecting photos from Dan's father's restaurant, the pantry of Old Town, and putting simple captions on them. And this one was Frank Lutcher with Masked Woman, circa 1990. Dan was very glad he'd known what the picture was going in. If he'd been rifling through a series of pictures, he might have overlooked it. The color wasn't great, and the image had obviously been scanned from a print that had been through wear, perhaps with sun or water involved. But more so, Frank looked very different. While the basic parameters of his body and the shape of his head were the same, the smile he turned toward the woman was casual. Perhaps the eyes looked nervous, but in a very human, natural way. They had none of the taut wildness that would help terrify Dan and Vanessa about 16 years later. Moving downwards from the face, Dan saw that Frank was dressed in jeans and a flannel over a black t-shirt with a golden ankh necklace. Dan shook his head at the thought of the uncle he knew wearing such an ensemble, and his eyes slid over to the masked woman. A couple heads shorter than Frank, she was wearing a daring black dress with silver trimmings, which looked like something out of the 20s. Given her richly brown skin, it called to mind the Harlem Renaissance. Her mask looked like it might have been designed to go with the dress. Silver inlaid on black, and while its triangular shape made her face hard to identify, it did not completely obscure it. A black turban, or turban-style cap, covered her hair. A sizable silver ankh pinned the turban together, if it was a turban, or adorned the cap, if it was a cap. Apart from them both wearing ankh symbols, they made an unlikely couple. But Dan knew from other pictures he'd seen, and from his own memories, that diverse dress had been very common at the pantry. And perhaps the whole story was right there. Meeting this woman out of time had inspired Frank to adopt his noirish dress code, and a broken heart explained his bitter attitude. Dan looked at the mask one more time, hoping to recognize something. And he did, but not anything he was expecting. Something about the shape of the mask had suggested that the masked woman had a haughty jollity, complementary to Frank's more raucous good spirits. But looking past the mask, into her eyes, there was nothing. A void of recognizable emotion. Just like in The Masked Woman today. And Uncle Arthur's remark about that woman had sent Dan on this whole search. Dan found it hard to breathe. The eyes again reminded him of the cone creatures of his dreams. He shook his head vigorously. Arthur would be expecting him soon, and Dan wanted to be focused back on reality by then. Justin Brandt, 1156 AM. Monday had been crappy, as Monday often is, with everyone expecting to be your first priority now that you're all rested and recouped. Plus, of course, there were the peculiars of the Strauss case, which quickly taught me that doing the prep so an amateur lawyer could defend himself badly was much more taxing than doing the whole job of defending him well. I couldn't consider any piece of work really finished until Strauss took action. I could only do my best and hope it was enough. So when my lunch with the girl I was now just calling Trouble approached, it was with more than usual relief that I stepped away from my desk and turned my brain off. It would be in the way, anyway. I'd suggested a two-story, cafeteria-style Chinese place a couple blocks east of the office on Michigan Avenue. Not at all fancy, but that would make it less ostentatious for me to pick up the tab. Plus, I wouldn't have the temptation to ply her with drinks. I hustled over there with a bit of half-jogging that probably looked silly in my suit, but I didn't let it bother me. Decorum is fine, but I'm a busy guy, and people might as well know that. 
If a look at me hurrying made her decide I was too common to bother with, that could save both of us time and hassle down the line. We'd agreed to meet on the sidewalk in front. There wasn't much waiting area inside, and they give you the side eye if you sit down without getting food first. So I did some breathing exercises and an anti-carpal stretch with my arms and tried to keep thoughts of the work I wasn't doing from creeping in. It occurred to me that smoking must have once been perfect for looking cool and unconcerned in situations like this. Sometimes I think I was born too late. Trouble showed up one minute early, stepping out of a rideshare in a very nice, simple, earth-tone skirt and blouse combo. Not quite office wear, but perfect to fit in with the crowds shopping at Macy's a few blocks away. Well, she'd still stand out, but it wouldn't seem deliberate. Hi she said with a smile, and put out her hand to give mine an ostentatiously manly shake. Old-school smoker me would probably have kissed it, but this was fun in its way. I noticed that she had less makeup on than at the laundry, and a few previously unsuspected freckles were showing. Freckles, for God's sake, was this girl the actual devil? Thanks so much, she said as I opened the door for her. I know you must be super busy. Pretty much. I said, seeing no point in hiding it. But I've got to eat at some point. It's good I have an excuse to take a little time rather than bolting food down so I can turn the billing clock back on. She made a tense smile and nod, of the kind I recognized from other law students, contemplating the enormity of the life they're jumping into. I'd no doubt looked the same just a few years earlier. I made what recommendations I could. We each got our stir-fry options of choice and took our trays to the upper floor in hopes of a booth. She seemed to find the spectacle of people of all occupational descriptions shoveling the food or chatting on the garish vinyl-covered furniture to be quite a lark. Luck was with us, and soon we were ensconced in the corner. There was absolutely no visual privacy, as the whole front of the place was a window letting in bright light but the general clatter gave us the sense of being unheard. So, what kind of practice are you looking to do? I asked, and we were launched into that shop-worn conversation. She yelled up her side of it competently, perhaps seeming to have a little less drive and more leisure than many in her situation. The prospect of being forced into some terrible job by student loans was not for her. She would work for a living, but only as it suited her to do so. She turned it around and started interviewing me about the firm, which is a great way to get your interlocutor to take you seriously, and it pretty much worked with me. She expressed an interest in intellectual property and criminal as areas of practice, and I quickly summarized how we'd lost a lot of our patent practice in the San Francisco debacle. She gave me a serious look, appreciating my directness, and perhaps being surprised by it. Again, my thought was, if the truth scares her off, better for everyone. I mentioned that I did a pretty good chunk of our criminal. She nodded. Yeah, I noticed that. I, I guess I cyberstalked you a little. I smiled and shrugged. I would call that being prepared. She looked awkward for a moment, and at this point, do I have to tell you she did it adorably? I'll try to stop. Anyway, what she said was... This may be a little shallow, but... It seems like you guys haven't done any really interesting criminal cases for a while. I blurted out a laugh, and she looked embarrassed and vulnerable. If I were one of those the-game guys, this would be the moment to make her feel bad about herself and me look good by comparison so she'd want to reach up and attain me. Fortunately, I'm not. 
That stuff may work alarmingly well on some very beautiful women, but I've never met a practitioner who didn't despise the women he got that way. So he throws them away, and then where is he? Right back where he started, except for some bad karma that's sure to come around someday. For myself, I'd do my best to ease us through this. And if that made me look good, it was gravy. That's what happens when you do things the right way, I said with a chuckle. You did legal research like they taught you, and got the finished cases. Whereas, if you looked at the trash news sites, you'd see I've got interesting up to my ears. Trouble still looked a little embarrassed, but the compliment I mixed in there seemed to keep her on an even keel. Oh, what's going on? I told her the outlines of the Strauss case, even as I could feel my automatic sensor walling off the really confidential details. I told her a lot more than I told John O. Maybe a little less than I told Jaina? Hard to compare. With Jaina, it had been the general interest murder stuff. Here, I was focusing on stuff a law student would be interested in. The professional responsibility and pro se defendant stuff. Wow. She said, as I relayed just a bit of my conversation with Jonathan Strauss. That sounds really tricky. Aren't you afraid you'll end up in a situation where anything you do could get you disbarred? I gave that a quick nod for perceptiveness. The stock phrase for that is, that's why they pay me the big bucks. But it's kind of true on this one. Now, you shouldn't expect it to happen like that all the time, but if you rub shoulders with rich people enough and give the impression that you're there to get things done, something like this tends to happen. Both the money and the trickiness. This is just an extreme version. She winced a little at my mention of rich people, which was my fault. Nobody likes to hear their group commodified, but her attention didn't waver. She was taking her new career seriously. We were running out of food and time. The self-destructive part of my mind kept spinning out ideas. She's smart. Maybe she likes theater. Her legs are perfect. Maybe she likes dancing. She doesn't want to be a sheltered suburban girl. Maybe she'd like to see a band. And that made me think of Jaina and how I wasn't going to do any of it. We rose, smiled, bust our trays, and walked downstairs. Thank you for lunch, she said back on the street. Don't think about it, I said. Then it happened. She got a crafty look. I'd like to make it up to you. Now I have no idea what I looked like. I lost all sense of self-possession. One of my favorite spots is right near your place. Could you be free for dinner sometime soon? I chuckled a little bit, the way I sometimes do when I'm watching a tense scene in a horror movie. And whatever face I made, apparently it invited comment. Yeah, okay. Maybe that's not the wisest thought I ever had. She said with a chuckle that matched mine, and eyes that looked unapologetically sly. I'm impulsive that way when something seems to be working. Sorry. Well, thank you. This was very helpful. I'd really like to talk shop again, if you're ever free and interested. She opened her mouth and half-gestured, as if she was about to say something that minimized our moment of tension. But she stopped herself, and instead said, Ball's in your court. My mouth froze, tied up by multiple things to say and reasons not to say them. She gave a half-smirk and stepped into the car that had just pulled up. I waved goodbye and let out a breath. The actual devil. Vanessa Dorn, 12.33 p.m. Well, that was better, thought Vanessa. Her encounter with Dan had gone so badly... She'd begun to doubt her powers of manipulation. 
But now she'd cashed in on a lifetime of observing up-and-comers like Justin Brandt and what they wanted, woman-wise, and felt like she'd done it with some skill. He'd told her about the Strauss case without her even mentioning it. On the other hand, while Brandt hadn't seemed suspicious, he'd still been professional. There'd been no dirt on Mr. Strauss, just a sense that he was not taking his own case seriously, plus some of the things Brandt would have to do to protect himself. Still, this was considerably more than he was technically supposed to tell her, and he'd thrown in that Strauss had some crazy statement he'd wanted to read in court. What that could be, she had no idea. But in a way, she thought, looking at the river as the rideshare slowly crossed the bridge from Chicago's bustling loop into the trendy near-north area, the more important things she had learned were the negatives. Abby's father wasn't claiming someone else did it. He wasn't pleading insanity. He wasn't claiming Harrison attacked him or any such bullshit. Or, if he was doing any of those things, he was doing it without the knowledge of his legal advisor. Of that she was certain. Brandt seemed like a very competent advocate, which she was sure involved occasional economy with the truth. But she really didn't think he'd been lying about that. Not unless he'd been on to Vanessa's game from square one, and she was determined not to doubt herself. But perhaps it was exactly that kind of doubt that made her give Brant the big tease at the end. And his reaction, confused silence, was that of a normal person living a normal life, where things like that don't happen very often. Not someone caught up in an exotic world of intrigue. She found this reassuring, but a little disappointing as well. It was good to find this bit of normality in the world, but the daunting quest in front of her made her yearn for easy affirmation and companionship, and a successful alpha male dropping everything for her sounded good, now that it looked like she wasn't going to get him. She noted this pattern in her old life. She valued those who resisted her, because their opinion of her seemed to match her opinion of herself. Even Dan's refusal to tell her anything about her father, infuriating as it was at the time, was making him seem more mature in retrospect. The rideshare dropped her where she'd left her car, a couple blocks from Cynthia's place. Magda was already there, leaning on the hood with her phone out. Vanessa took out her car fob and clicked the doors open. Mag's reaction to the sound was to wordlessly put her phone away and her stuff inside. The only bag left on the curb was Vanessa's. Mag had been out with Cynthia on Friday night and had therefore missed Vanessa freaking out about Abby. By the time she'd returned, in the wee hours, Mag was too tipsy for a serious discussion. So it wasn't until Saturday afternoon, as Vanessa was preparing to transition from cyberstalking Brent to ambushing him, that she told Mag her carefully edited version of events. That Abby's death had left her with questions, that she would take a few days to run them down, and that no one was to know about it. Ven did not mention the immortality thing. Even that version had gotten Magda looking concerned, but when Vanessa minimized it, Mag shrugged and didn't push. That was Mag. But now, Mag was leaning against the car again, looking downcast, hiding emotion. Are you really sure you want to do this? She said to the ground. It seems kind of extreme. I know, said Ven, walking over and putting an arm around the back of her neck. But I've got to do it. And you don't want me to help? You will be helping, here. She pushed her car key ring, phone, and credit card into Mag's hand. Keep the phone with you, drive the car whenever you need to drive, use the card to buy gas and food. If they check my electronic trail, they'll think I'm doing what I'm supposed to. Or given that it's you, what I'm not supposed to. But a girl my age might be doing anyway. 
Mag looked up and gave the joke a half-smile, with effort. If she was at all relieved to be sent back to her life rather than taking part in Vanessa's crazy crusade, she was doing a good job of hiding it. This almost made Vanessa weaken in her resolve to send her away, but the main sticking point remained. She couldn't stand the idea of another friend getting hurt. Magda's forehead wrinkled with thought. And remind me, is this so your rents don't worry, or because they're the ones you're looking into? Magda hadn't forgotten anything. Vanessa had carefully skirted that point. Just don't answer my phone. Google Voice should let me pick it up wherever I am. And I only take Sandra's calls half the time anyway. Magda took a slow breath. Her face smoothed itself out, but her eyes were solemn. You take care of yourself, rich girl. Seems like these guys play rough. I plan to play rougher. Their eyes locked. Neither of them seemed convinced, but neither of them could think of anything more to say. Magda finally returned Vanessa's hug and did it hard, the way Ven wished she'd hugged Abby. Perhaps, she thought, Magda expected Vanessa to be as dead as Abby soon. And perhaps she was right. Regardless, after half a minute, Magda dropped the hug and walked away, as wordlessly as she'd walked away from the pizza place. Vanessa waited for a last wave, but didn't get it. The car backed up, pulled out, signaled a turn at the end of the block, and was gone. That was Mag. Now Vanessa really was on her own. Complete freedom of action, combined with complete loneliness. Everything she might have wished for in the most misanthropic moments of her adolescence. But this wasn't some childish fantasy. This was supposed to have a purpose. It had to serve justice for Abby and Harrison, and the completion of their search for the truth. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 2.1, Pretense. Jamie Gosling was the primary narrator and Magda. John Dre was Justin Brandt. Stacey Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Fantasy World by Melancholic Bird. You can hear works by both of them at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana and Nash. This episode's cover image is Closed Black Book by Umit Yildirim. You can find images by him on Unsplash. So now that we've eased you back into the story, with Dan piecing hints together and Vanessa manipulating Justin, our characters will have to face harder choices of trust in next week's episode, Admission. And of course, admission to our podcast is free, but you can still pay us back by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice, or by purchasing the complete book in Kindle or paperback from Amazon, or as an audiobook from many retailers, including Audible. Meanwhile, you can find us at Legacy Door Novel on Twitter and Facebook, or see the family trees, transcripts, and other supplementary material at our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com. And we're still curious whether anyone would like to see us on Blue Sky, Mastodon, or elsewhere. This podcast is one of many presented by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester, and it's great being back. Dueling Genre